Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So it makes no sense uh, to me why people think she's a secret agent uh, and why she, we, she would be connected to Townsend and City. It's just total speculation. It's, uh, it's just crazy. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Bill Blyer talking about some of the common misconceptions around one of the most famous spy rings in the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Discover Concord, the town where our American history began. Plan to visit and explore historic Concord, Massachusetts. For more information, visit discoverconcordma.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Bill Blyer. And he'll be talking about a subject that has been really one of the focal points of his academic career, the Culpeper spy ring. You know, we see uh, a lot of representations of this particular topic in popular culture, from movies to books by non-historians to uh, popular television series. And as Bill describes, a lot of those will muddy the water at times, Uh I think on a personal note, we have to keep focused, though, that any any attention to the American Revolution is good attention. Um, I know that some particular movies that came out in, in years gone by made me initially interested in history. And I know now that those movies weren't necessarily the most, like, you know, accurate representations ever made. Uh, but it did lead me to find real books by actual historians. And it put me on a career path to become a professional historian. So before we're too hard on movies and films, um, let's remember what the overall goal is, which is to attract interest to the field we know is just so great and so important. Bill Blyer does a really nice job talking about the Culpeper spy ring and maybe dispelling some of the misconceptions around it. He wrote a wonderful article on this. I encourage you to read it. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bill Blyer. Bill Blyer, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. Okay, um, I am have been primarily a journalist for most of my career. Uh, I've got about 40 years of uh, weekly but mostly daily journalism, most recently for 33 years as a Newsday reporter where I specialized in uh, history and maritime affairs for the Long Island Daily Paper. Uh, but always been interested in history. You know, even before I got to elementary school, I was reading uh, the uh, Random House put out this series called Landmark Books, uh, which were uh, serious history done for young people by real and you know, important historians like Bruce Catton. So you know, I, I sort of read them and uh, always loved history. I forced my parents to take me to Gettysburg and Williamsburg and Philadelphia when I was pretty young. Um, I even won the uh, Queens County History Award from the American Legion, so um, it's, you know, it's been a long-time interest. Um, 
thought about majoring in history, but uh, couldn't figure out what I would do with it uh, other than teaching. And then ironically, I ended up uh, teaching history now in college. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, I've always had this history in the background, uh, particularly interested in the Civil War and maritime history and military history. Um, and then luckily got to sort of shift my career to focus on that a lot at Newsday. And then I decided uh, along the way there were a lot of books that I thought should be written and uh, didn't have time to do it part-time while I was working full-time at Newsday. So I finally left in 2014 to quote-unquote retire, uh, primarily to start writing these books. So I've now done five uh, in the last uh, seven years. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, well, basically, um, <clears throat> it's it's a sort of a con- condensation of uh, part of my fifth book, which was on the cult of spy ring. And uh, what uh, I've been I've sort of known about the ring since I was a kid because um, I live not far from Raynham Hall, the uh, the home of Robert Townsend, the uh, chief spy in the city for the cult of spy ring. So. Uh, and not far, not too far from where Nathan Hale came across Long Island Sound uh, you know, in the first ill-fated attempt by the Continental Army to do uh, espionage. So it's sort of I grew up in you know being aware of uh, you know the spy ring and uh, intelligence during the war, and then um, the actual impetus for this was uh, was turned the AMC series which generated a huge amount of interest in the spy ring, even though the history is mangled pretty badly in the series. And uh, I had already done um, four books for the history press, and uh, the publisher came back to me and said, you know, we'd love to do something on the spy ring, and there's a Long Island uh, George Washington spy trail that the state set up to sort of link all these uh, spy-related sites. And uh, you know, the publisher said, can you come up with a book on the spy ring because turns are so popular? And my immediate reaction was no, because Alexander Rose had done uh, this very voluminous book. You know, that was the basis of the turn, even though they didn't pay much attention to him, even though he was their historical consultant. Um, you know, and there's, there's other books, more, you know, going back to Morning Pettenpacker in the 30s, even though uh, I subsequently discovered that his books aren't particularly accurate. But I, I just sort of figured, okay, it's been done. There's a lot of uh, books uh, that deal with aspiring as part of, larger tales of espionage. Um, and so I said no, and I said, I'll think about it. And then a former congressman, Steve Israel, uh, Long Island congressman who was uh, prominent in the House, uh, became a uh, sort of a head of like a think tank for Long Island University, uh, CW Post Campus. And he invited me over for coffee and said this institute that he was now running would love to do something to promote the knowledge of the spy ring, uh, promote tourism through this you know, state spy trail, and couldn't, couldn't I come up with a book on spy ring? And I thanked him for the coffee and said the same thing I had said to my publisher, that it's sort of, you know, been done. And then I was drive, literally driving away from him, and I stopped and pulled over, called him back on my cell phone. I said, you know what could work is a combination book on the history of the spy ring uh, and sort of a tour guide to Long Island Revolutionary War sites because nobody has done that part. Uh, and I called the publisher and I said, I have an idea to make your idea, you know, to give you the book you want. And they love the idea. Uh, so it's sort of two thirds spy ring and one third tour guide. Um, but then the interesting twist, which I didn't anticipate, was all the other spy books Alexander Rose, Brian Kilmeade's bestseller, which is also a terrible history, uh, and a lot of other books that are less, lesser known. 
um, basically give their version of the spy ring. So they don't talk about the fact that everybody else has a different version. They just said, this is a story. Um, so maybe it's coming at it from the journalistic point of view. I started doing all this research, and I'd say, okay, wait a minute. Uh, Brian Kilmeade says this. Alexander Rose says this. Former CIA uh, case officer Kenneth Degler says the third thing. What's what's going on here? And I started to you know look at all the different versions, try to make sense out of it. Um, and the other thing that I did, uh, no, and nobody's done that as far as I can tell. This of mine is really the first analytical history, where I look at all the versions and try to pick through them and substitute, you know, sort out the myth versus reality. And um, the other thing I did that nobody else has done is there are. Uh, several historians on Long Island have spent their whole careers looking at the spy ring. Uh, all the other authors, Alexander Rose, Brian Kilmeade, sat down with them, convened them in conferences or whatever, uh, and then did their own version, often ignoring what the local historians who know the story better than anybody uh, had have discovered in all their research. So what I ended up doing is going back to them, uh, initially using them as sources, talking to tell me your version of the, of the spy story, but then I'd be going back to them like every day and say, okay, this author says this, and so and so says this, what do you think? Uh, and then I would take down what they said to try to make a decision. And then when I decided to expand this into this analytical kind of book, uh, I let them weigh in on everything. And, um, you know, a lot of what they had to say had been ignored by other historians. So I listened to them, you know, listened to what the other people said and made my own conclusion. So sometimes I agreed with one or more more of them. Sometimes I didn't agree with anybody else. But uh, it's you know as far as I'm concerned, it's the most accurate history of the spy ring, and it really reflects heavily on what these local historians have come up with. You know, and and I put all of this into the book ultimately. So I have their analysis, my analysis, and then uh, you know really think it's probably the most accurate version so far. Bill, you write about this in your article. Uh, how have recent books and television series muddied the waters on this particular subject? The um, Well, as I said, as I started to go through all this, I'm getting all these different versions. And um, Newsday, uh, when I was there back in the late 90s, did a, a project called Long Island, Our Story, which is was the history of Long Island done every day in the paper, a full page or more for a full year, which turned into three books. Um, so we dealt with the spy ring and stuff. And the I didn't do the I didn't do the uh, Revolutionary War co- coverage in that. I did other things, but it talked about you know some of the famous anecdotes uh, from the spy ring story, uh, particularly Anna Strong and her clothesline that supposedly uh, alerted the uh, chief spy Abraham Woodhull, where Caleb Brewster, the courier who was carrying the messages across Long Island Sound, would be so they could rendezvous. So, um, you know, I had paid some attention to what um, was known to be true, what was known to be legend, and what was somewhere in the middle. Um, But as I'm doing the research, I'm sort of stunned by what people were throwing out there. So a lot of people accept, you know, the Anastron clothesline story, which was first advanced by Morton Pennypacker back in the 30s. Um, Some of them were just repeating it as he did as fact. Uh, without being at all critical. And I'm saying, you know, this doesn't make sense. Um, uh, there's uh, whole aspects of this. It's, you know, the role of uh, of um, James Rivington in New York City, Tory publisher. Was he, was he part of the spy ring or not? Um, was he really helping you know, Washington? 
Uh, and then the most you know controversial thing of all is this quote unquote agent 355, who's supposed to be this female spy, uh, who's highly involved uh, based on almost no historical facts. So uh, you know some of this stuff is stunning. I mean, I, I pick particularly on Brian Kilmeade in part because he has a bestseller. So he, along with Turn, are the primary sources of information for most of the population. Uh, about the spy story, and they both get it really wrong, um, and it, it's you know it's frustrating to me. Uh, and I know Brian Kilmeade sat down and convened all these local historians, had you know his ghostwriters and his researchers all listening to them, and then ignored almost everything they told him. Um, but the, you know this is so the, you know the, the real stories get sort of buried under the uh, this effort to sort of you know dramatize it and make it sexy. You know, uh, you know turn turn was terrible history. I mean they do all kinds of things to turn the story inside out. They turn chief spy Abraham Woodhull's father, who's a local minister and an ardent patriot, into a Tory that's uh, socializing and having tea the first time you see him with the Tory with the British officers, when in fact they came looking for his son, couldn't find him, and they almost beat his father to death in, in interrogating him to try to find out where Abraham Woodhull is. Um, you know, they create a... Uh, uh, non-existent uh, romantic relationship with Abraham Woodhull and Anna Strong, his neighbor uh, and family friend, even though she's happily married and has six young children to take care of, uh, you know, no no evidence whatsoever. Um, and the other thing that makes me crazy about the Kilmeade book is it's full of invented dialogue, uh, and obviously nobody knows what these people are saying, but they don't even explain anywhere in the book that they're putting in dialogue to make it, you know, more readable. So it's really historical fiction with a lot of supposition, but they don't tell you that. I mean, it's told, you know, this is the true, true story. And um, he talks about, you know, the subtitle is The Secret Six, the um, despiring that wins the war by itself, not the Continental Army, not George Washington. But he picks, he says, despiring six people, when we know, in fact, that there's a dozen or more people proven to have been involved in spiring. And... He doesn't include the courier bringing the information back and forth to the city. He doesn't include Caleb Brewster, the whaleboat captain who's carrying the messages across the sound. Without Caleb Brewster, there's no, you know, the chain is broken. There's no spy ring, but he doesn't include him as one of the spies or part of the spy ring. It's just, you know, kind of mind-boggling. And then uh, this whole Agent 355 thing, you know, which goes starts back with Morton Pennypacker that... Uh, as a female spy, and uh, she uh, ends up as the mistress of, of, of Robert Townsend in the city, ends up giving giving birth to an illegitimate child. She dies uh, on a uh, prison hulk in New York Harbor. I mean, it, uh, and all that is based on literally one reference to an unidentified woman in one letter from the spy ring. And, uh, you know, Kilmeade has her as a socialite, uh, Tory in the city who decides to change sides and is feeding information uh, to, to, to the spy ring uh, because she's in uh, British spy John Andre's social circle. You know, no no evidence for any of this stuff. And then it's thrown out there as, as, as fact, and it makes me crazy. Why was George Washington interested in a spy ring? Okay, um, you know, wa- Washington is an interesting character because he didn't really have, you know, he, he didn't go to military school or come up through, the, like, the British Army um, he sort of learned on, on the job as, you know, at first as a Virginia militia officer. Uh, and, you know, he's uh, 
famously attached to the Braddock uh, expedition going out to attack Fort Pitt, which becomes Pittsburgh. Um, and, and Braddock uh, ends up giving up his life because he doesn't do uh, any kind of intelligence gathering. There's no scouting. Uh, famously, Braddock goes marching off with his redcoats in, in European kind of style of warfare, and the French have learned from their Indian allies, you know, that's not the way you fight in the wilderness. Uh, Braddock is killed. Most of the column is, 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 uh, is wiped out. Washington miraculously survives, rallies the survivors, and gets them back to safety in eastern Virginia. So Washington has learned an important lesson early on. You know, it almost loses his life in the process uh, that you need to know who your enemy is, how they fight, what they're doing. Um, so he's very cognizant, even long before the revolution, of the need for military intelligence. And uh, he's uh, something he's concerned about as soon as he's appointed uh, commander of the Continental Army. And um, he that lesson is reinforced in his biggest first battle, the Battle of Long Island in August of 1776. The British sail into New York Harbor. Uh, they don't know what they're doing where they're going. So the British uh, set up camp on Staten Island. Washington tries to send uh, agents, if you want to call them, uh, or reconnaissance people or spies, uh, to Staten Island to find out what they're up to and can't because he doesn't have a network or anybody in place. Then the British uh, cross uh, New York Harbor, uh, land in Brooklyn, and again, Washington is taken by surprise of where they're going and when they're going. Uh, and once they get there, he doesn't know, is this the real attack? Is this a feint so he can attack Manhattan? And um, they, the, the biggest problem is because he doesn't know what the British are up to. Uh, there are five passes uh, that lead through, uh, through the American lines on the heights, uh, along Brooklyn Heights and into Gowanus. Uh, Washington and his officers figure that four of them have to be defended, and the fifth one all the way east in Jamaica, is too far out of the way to be worried about, so they only put four officers there um, as a light guard. And the British plan from Henry Clinton is basically faint on the western end of the, of the, um, of the lines and then take the, most of the bulk of the army through Jamaica Pass. So they do that overnight. They capture the four uh, Continental officers and then get behind the bulk of the Continental Army and almost wipe it out. The war probably would have ended that day, except... Uh, General Howe was kind of conservative. He decides to stop the attack and re consolidate his lines, uh, get up his reinforcements, and uh, it allows Washington to uh, famously retreat across the East River the next night and save the bulk of his army. Um, so, again, he's, he's surprised, almost uh, wiped out uh, Providence or whatever, or good luck saves him. As soon as he's you know, safely back in Manhattan, uh, at least temporarily, to the British surprise him again with an attack across the East River to Kips Bay. Uh, he immediately sets up uh, the effort to get uh, an intelligence network because he knows the British have a very good one and he can't compete with them without doing the same thing. Who were among the prominent figures in the Culpeper spy ring? Okay, um, there, there's, there's a half dozen key players. Uh, the first one is Benjamin Talmadge. Um, and Setauket on uh, in the middle of North Shore of Long Island is, is sort of the center for all this activity because all the key players except uh, Robert Townsend uh, all grew up together in Setauket, so they know each other, they trust each other. Uh, Talmadge is the son of a local clergyman. 
uh, at the beginning of the war, he flees to Connecticut along with most of the patriots on Long Island, joins a Connecticut cavalry regiment, and um, distinguishes himself uh, in battles around Philadelphia, attracts the notice of George Washington, and eventually joins Washington's staff because Washington's always looking for bright, energetic uh, young officers like Alexander Hamilton. So uh, initially he has a Colonel Thomas Knowlton start aspiring um, a spy operation. Then he hires uh, a businessman named Nathaniel Sackett to try to create a spy ring. That doesn't work. He um, has General Charles Scott um, become spy chief. And But when he... Um, when he hires Hackett, he says, I need somebody to be a liaison at, between the civilian spy master and the army, and he, he uh, names Talmadge to the role. And Sackett sort of flames out, doesn't do anything useful, and is fired after a month. Uh, but Talmadge is a brilliant choice. He's bright. He's a Yale graduate, classmate of Nathan Hale, and uh, takes uh, has no background in espionage, but is a quick learner. So he ends up uh, being the assistant to... Sackett, and then when Sackett's fired and Charles Scott takes over, he's the assistant to General Scott, and Scott does a pretty bad job and eventually gives up the job and leaves the Army, at which point uh, Washington says to Talmadge, who's only 24, you're now my director of military intelligence. So he's the one who actually puts the whole thing together, um, creates a fairly sophisticated code, which we can talk about later. Um, so he's a key player. He's the spy master to hold it all together. For the uh, for the whole bulk of the spy ring, which is 1778 through the end of the war in 83, uh, then you have his friend and neighbor Abraham Woodhull, who's just a talkative farmer and becomes the chief spy for the whole spy ring. Uh, based out of his talkative farm, he starts out going into New York and uh, periodically to gather intelligence. Comes back to Setauket and meets Caleb Brewster. The whaleboat captain is, is another childhood friend, and he's the one carrying the messages back and forth across the sound. Uh, Brewster's actually the, the impetus for the coal perspiring because after General Scott gives up the, the espionage role in Washington's in the dark, Brewster writes Washington a letter uh, and says, um, I, I, you know, I'm on the sound all the time. I'm also around Long Island, uh, even though I'm sort of an enemy to most of the people left. Uh, and offers to give him intelligence, and Washington says, great, give me all you can, don't spare any expense. And um, that letter in the uh, uh, in the fall of 1778 is actually sort of the, the real beginning of the, of the culprit spiring. So um, he's a key link. Then you have uh, Weston Rowe, a tavern owner, and Stalkett, another uh, longtime friend of everybody, becomes the chief courier when it becomes too dangerous for... Uh, Woodhull to, to keep going back and forth to the city because he's continually questioned, stopped, uh, robbed by Tory uh, patrols. Uh, he finally persuades Talmadge in Washington that it's too dangerous for him to keep going to the city. And uh, he recruits uh, Robert Townsend, who he knows because they stay in the same boarding house in the city. And uh, then you have Weston Rowe and a few other couriers going back and forth most of the time. So... Uh, he's a key player. And then, you know, Townsend uh, takes over in the uh, summer of 1779 uh, after uh, Woodhull asked him to become the chief sort of embedded spy in the city. Uh, and he's in the city because his father, Samuel, is a major merchant out in Oyster Bay. And Townsend uh, 
Robert Townsend is his purchasing agent in, in the city. So um, Townsend is the one who makes the biggest uh, uh, intelligence coups during the war, and he becomes critical to the operation. So that, those are pretty much the, the main players, along with George Washington, who's very involved in all this. What would a secret agent, to use a modern term, uh, have, have done? What tactics would they have used in the 18th century? Um, if you read the letters, it's, I mean, the, what they're supplying is incredibly detailed. And uh, you, you sort of, you know, you have sort of like your mouth drops. It's like, how can they get this much detail? They know which regiment is where. The ship arrived with you know, X amount of soldiers and cargo. Uh, I mean, the reports are like staggeringly detailed. Um, what they did is they, um, you know, basically they used their, uh, like, you know, Townsend being a merchant in the city, uh, and uh, he, he, you know, he would frequent the coffee house uh, uh, across the street from his, his office on Hanover Square, where the British officers were always there and talking about uh, to Rivington's newspaper because they wanted to be mentioned you know, in, the, in the Royal Gazette. Um, so they, they just talked to a lot of people, and they had their own. They all had their sort of network of people they could get information from. Um, but it, it's also fascinating. They sort of learned spycraft, um, you know, sort of on the job. There were books already. Uh, there's some great articles in the journal about you know the the early spycraft, uh, and the British were much more advanced at this. And luckily, um, they had code breakers and really you know intelligent people. But they never brought any of them to America. So you know, John Andre was was a pretty bright guy, uh, but he was sort of also a self-taught spy. So uh, if they had brought over some of their expert, you know, espionage people from London, they might have broken some of the codes and really made a difference. But uh, they start out basically writing, full, you know, in plain language. Uh, and what they did early on is, is uh, they all realized they had to protect themselves somehow because. Uh, Periodically during the war, a lot of these letters were actually apprehended uh, by the British. So they start out with code names. So uh, Talmadge becomes John Bolton. Abraham Woodhull becomes uh, Samuel Culper. So the letters are in plain text with plain information, uh, and they they protect themselves by signing the code names. So at least if they're captured, they won't know that Abraham Woodhull wrote the letter. It'll be Samuel Culper, who ideally they won't know who that is. then they start doing uh, uh, Woodhull Talmadge uh, develop these early code names, and then they come up with uh, Woodhull ups the game with uh, starts to give a three-digit code for places, so they could say, uh, let's say New York, they put a you know three-digit code, or to talk a, a different three-digit code, and they did that for about 30 letters that went back and forth, and then. Talmadge decides this is still not secure enough, so he does uh, devises what he calls a dictionary, and what it is is basically a whole code book um, where they give uh, uh, digits for places, they um, uh, words, uh, 710 words that are frequently used, names or words, are given three-digit codes. And then there's a substitution code using numbers for letters and vice versa uh, for anything that's not spelled out in that list of 710. Um, and this, you can it, uh, the one surviving copy is, is Washington's in the, in the Library of Congress, and you can actually see it online. Uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting to look at. 
but the the most ingenious and most secure thing that they do is Washington gets a letter from John Jay, his future uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, saying, my brother James, who's a, a doctor uh, who practiced in London before the war, is an amateur chemist, and he develops a secret ink. And early on, people would do secret letters with uh, writing in, in milk or lemon juice, and that would be revealed by putting a candle behind it, and the heat would bring out the writing. But everybody involved in spycraft knew that, so it was not particularly secure. So Jay comes up with a chemical he calls the stain, and when you write in it, it's invisible, and you only can reveal it with a specific second chemical, which they call the counterpart. counterpart. Um, and if you don't have a counterpart, you could do anything you want with that letter, and you'll never be able to read it. So um, Washington is thrilled. It takes a while for James Jay to make enough of, the, of it. Uh, he tries it and loves it, says, get me all you can, and it takes him about six months to get enough to, to even get, let the, uh, the spies start to play with it. But... And there's a lot of periods during the war when they can't get it because the chemicals are hard to find. Um, so you'll see some letters uh, were done fully in stain, and some were, there's times where they revert back to uh, letters that written in uh, legibly, but in the code. Uh, but they did some you know interesting things too, as they would write letters that look like uh, Townsend would write a letter to a Tory, you know, saying I'm trying to you know fulfill your order for paper or whatever. Uh, and then in between the lines of that supposed letter to the Tory about business would be the code, uh, coded letter in Spain. So they, they, they got pretty clever. Talk about the person you describe uh, as 355. Okay. Um, it's, 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 it sort of blows my mind as, as, as a historian and journalist how people have just taken this and just spun this tale based on this one letter. Uh, from Abraham Woodall, where he writes to uh, 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 basically saying, uh, he writes a letter to Washington in, in August of 79, saying, uh, with the help of a 355, which is the code code for lady, with the help of, of a 355, I, I plan to outwit them all, talking about the British. And that's it. That's the only reference to any lady anywhere in the 193 surviving uh, Culper letters. So uh, from there, as I mentioned, it's there's just these giant leaps of faith. Uh, Kilmeade actually goes as far as calling her Agent 355. Uh, the term agent, you know, for spy was never used during the Revolution. That's a term that came in, came in years later. So there's clearly never any Agent 355. There is a woman somewhere named 355 that did help Woodhull. Um, the best guess uh, of uh, Beverly Tyler, one of my sources, the Setauket historian from the Three Village Historical Society, is he's talking about Anna Strong, who lives around uh, on across the bay from him, uh, close friend, you know, a neighbor. Uh, she's known to have gone with Woodhull by carriage into the city occasionally to give him some cover. I don't know if they portrayed husband and wife or, you know, what they, what they did, but she would go with him to help him on, on his, some of his runs before he stopped going to the city when Townsend joins. Uh, so my guess is that letter at 355, he's referring to as Anna Strong, but Kilmeade and uh, lots of other historians uh, come up with these theories that, like I said, she's a Tory uh, woman, 
uh, in Andre's circle in the city or whatever, uh, and they attach her to Townsend, you know, and, and some of them say that, you know, they had a, uh, they, they were lovers and they had an illegitimate child. Uh, it makes no sense because the only reference to, three, to this woman is in a letter from Woodhull, not in a letter from Townsend in the city. So there's no known connection at all between this woman and Townsend. So it, the only connection is to Woodhull through that one letter. So it makes no sense uh, to me why people think she's a secret agent uh, and why she, we, she would be connected to Townsend in the city. It's just total speculation. It's, uh, it's just crazy. In your opinion, Bill, how effective was this espionage ring for George Washington? Um, well, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I have a whole chapter on this in the book. The, there's a wide range of opinion, and uh, the widest range is from Washington himself, because in the beginning of the war, uh, there's at least three letters where he's like extremely complimentary, saying, I rely on these people. They're very accurate. They're detailed. Uh, by the end of the war, he had totally soured on them, and when the... Uh, the, the, the members of the spy ring uh, at, at Washington's request submit their final request for expenses. And it's important to note that they got expense money, but they were never paid. Uh, they, they all did this from patriotic fervor. But uh, at the end, he's basically saying they weren't worth the money that they're getting paid for their expenses. Um, and that really, I think, stems from the fact that both the war had shifted to, to Virginia. So and, you know what was going on in New York and Long Island really wasn't that important. Uh, but the, the main thing was, uh, from day one, Washington, even when he was praising him, he's complaining because the information is taking this circuitous route from New York, 55 miles east on Long Island to Setauket, across Long Island Sound, and then back to equal distance to Washington's headquarters, either north of, New Jersey, uh, north of the city or even in New Jersey. Uh, initially, it took three weeks to make that to go one way. And they finally fine-tuned it by adding couriers and uh, uh, relay of, of uh, dragoons on the Connecticut side. They got it down to a week to 10 days. But Washington complains throughout the war that it's taking so long that by the time he gets the information, it's either too late to do anything with it or he's already heard the same information from somebody sooner. Uh, and there's also a period when, uh, when Benedict Arnold switches sides and... Uh, <clears throat> One of the first things he does is he goes to New York and basically arrests everybody he thinks is involved in spying for the for the Americans. Uh, that so uh, alarms Townsend that he leaves the city entirely for nine months. Uh, the spy ring basically ceases to function, uh, and Washington sort of semi-officially just disbands it until the French get into the war and decides he needs all the information he gets and reaches out uh, to Talmadge to get the the culprits back involved. But uh, you know, Talmadge in his in his personal memoirs said it, you know, it was it was extremely important. Uh, it shows it's shown by the fact that Washington relied on them for the whole war, ignoring the fact that Washington kept trying to come up with alternatives and couldn't. So the culprits was the best thing he had. Uh, then you have uh, Brian Kilmeade basically saying they won the war single-handedly. I mean, which is preposterous. That it wasn't George Washington, it wasn't the Continental Army wasn't, you know, John Paul Jones, it was the spy ring won the war all by themselves, which no other historian, you know, would accept. Um, so, but there are specific examples that you can uh, cite to show their value. Uh, Woodhull and uh, Caleb Brewster, who was frequently bu- you know, buzzing around on Long Island, were, were uh, 
constantly give recommendations to Talmadge in Washington saying there's this fort in this town or this you know, this British regiment is in this town. They're, uh, they're, they're the perfect target for a raid. Uh, you can get in there you know, and, and uh, capture this fort without a lot of casualties. Uh, and there's at least three or four times when uh, Talmadge recommends they act on the information to Washington and it gets to go ahead. Uh, and they captured a, uh, one, a fort, uh, fort St. George on the south shore of Long Island, took out 90 prisoners. They burned 300 tons of hay, stockpile for British uh, war horses on the way back to Connecticut. Uh, so that's clearly a value. Um, there's another instance where uh, Townsend unmasked a supposed patriot spy who turns out has, is a double agent working for the British. Um, so they put a stop to him. And then probably the the best thing that they also sort of warned uh, about uh, you know British incursions on Rhode Island things like that. But probably the most important thing they did is a letter of Townsend writes in November of 1779 about the British counterfeiting of, uh, efforts. And the British have been trying to count have been counterfeiting or trying to counterfeit continental currency from the beginning of the war, figuring if they flood the market with phony bills, it'll create such inflation that the Continental Congress won't be able to afford to uh, support the war effort. But every time they do it, they're using paper that's clearly different from what the Continental Congress is using, and anybody familiar with the currency can tell right away it's fake. But then in a letter uh, in, in November of 79, Townsend writes to Washington that the British have acquired in Philadelphia the exact same paper used for the Continental Currency, in uh, Washington immediately writes to Congress, alert them that their whole financial underpinnings for the war is in danger. Um, and then I guess they dither for three months, but eventually withdraw all the currency from circulation and print new money on different paper. Uh, but had that counterfeiting scheme uh, succeeded, they, they, they conceivably could have made the war un- unsustainable. Bill, how does this article help us to understand the Revolutionary Era better? Um, well, I mean, if you're interested at all in the war, it's interesting, you know, to get down in the weeds about how it was fought, how it was won. Uh, and this espionage is, is critical to the war effort, and it's something uh, that begins, you know, with the first major battle of the war and continues right up until the end, um, when uh, it's actually Robert Townsend who tells Washington that the British are agreed to uh, independence. Uh, he sends a letter down to Washington and in Yorktown. Uh, so it's kind of fascinating. If you're interested in the war, uh, this is a key part of how, how the Americans won the war. So uh, it definitely, you know, what you want to know that. It expands the in- in interest and understanding of how the war was fought. Uh, the other thing, you know, that it, I think it does, uh, it's, you know, it's fascinating to me, and I think a lot of historians to watch, watch Washington's evolving uh, expertise as, as a general. And, and to see his interest in intelligence and how he benefited from his experience in the French and Indian War and spent put so much time and attention on espionage and intelligence gathering right from the summer of 76 to the end of the war, uh, you know, I think gives you a better understanding of the war effort and also of Washington's uh, mindset. So uh, that's, you know, part of the reason I wanted to do this. But, uh, you know, the main reason I did all this and the main value I think of this article and this and this podcast is there's so much misinformation of legend and and uh, outright supposition masquerading as fact 
that um, I'm hoping I can put a stop to that and get people to really you know look at the real story. Bill Blyer, thanks again. Great, thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.